Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Before I bring today's guest to the screen, I want to give a shout out to Lady COX, and specifically the Lady Cox Collection. A few months ago, I had some special guests who came on and talked about their love relationship with each other and why safe consumption sites are needed. They were wearing t-shirts. I reached out to Lady Cox and Lady Cox has delivered my shirt that talks about safe consumption sites saves lives. I believe in that fact science believes in that as well. Do check out more information about that. I'll always make sure I put that information out there on Instagram. Lady Cox Collection, COX. Find out more about how you can order a shirt like this, as well as the other shirts and other designs she has in her collections. This is a plug she did not know about. Do check it out. It is important. Now, if you're watching us here on YouTube, you may have been noticing that over the last few weeks and months, the bags under my eyes have become darker. It could be because of the pandemic that we live in, the winter cold that's here in Alberta, Canada. I'm going to blame it on today's guest. Now, today's guest has written a book called Our Gay History in 50 States, a fantastic book or should I say, Encyclopedia of Knowledge. Now, I made the decision a while ago that I was going to read before going to bed. But with his book, I read, and then I have to pick up my phone and or go to the main computer and research all of these fantastic names I may not have heard about before finding out more. So today's guest is Zaylor Stout. And he is the cause of the bags under my eyes. It's my story, and I'm going to stick to it. Sailor serves as a fierce advocate on LGBTQ plus issues. Through his law firm, Sailor Stout and Associates, LLC, he's represented HIV positive and transgender employees who were discriminated against at the workplace. Now, he volunteers through the LGBT law clinic. and serves on the board for Reclaim, which happens to be an LGBTQIA plus nonprofit. In November of 2017, he gave a speech at the Quorum's National Coming Out Day alongside the excellent, iconic Judy Shepard. His law firm was recently selected by the Minneapolis-St. Paul Business Journal for their Business of Pride Award. And through that, he was put on the cover of Lavender Magazine. Now, about this book that we're going to really talk about today, the Genesis started in 2014, where he took a drive across the country. And as he went over the state line after state line, he found himself detouring to landmarks of the LGBT plus heroes and history in each place. And created... What I mentioned before, Our Gay History in 50 States. It's a travel guide. It's a book, and it's an encyclopedia of facts and figures and everything that you need to know about the fantastic rainbow community that we live in. 
encompassing all 50 states as well as Washington, D.C. and island territories. Our Gay History of 50 States documents the highs and lows of American LGBT plus history. And in its pages, you'll learn about the LGBT plus presidents and two-spirit warriors, the inclusive progression of, of gay rights movement, iconic orange juice boycotts, and the true origin of Vogue dancing. From the childhood homes of historical figures to the safe spaces of grassroots organizations, this book is filled with destinations for those on their own local or cross-country tours of the past. And much like this podcast, sometimes seeing yourself in history is all you need to validate your battle for the future. I've wanted to have this conversation for a while now because it's an excellent book, but it's also nice to be able to have a conversation that talks about the similarities and contrasts between the United States of America and where I'm at here in Canada. So I look forward to this. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, we talked to Zaylor Stout about the past, present, and future. Before I bring him to your listening ears, this may be your first time ever listening to this podcast. Welcome. Thank you for finding us. If you are returning, thank you again. I'm glad you find content here that you find is needed and you want to know more. And if you are one of the people who have listened to all of the podcasts, which we're now around 45 of them, and I know that there are people who have, thank you. You're crazy. Thank you. Uh, a million love notes and thank yous to you are not enough. I so appreciate it. Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly video and audio podcast where we showcase the remarkable people within our 2S LGBTQIA community and is listening to their stories. They become our stories. And that's where we gain insight and understanding and connection. Perhaps one day your story will join us. So let's continue to connect on a weekly basis where we're introduced to amazing people, stories and topics, and we become smitten once again. Now, if you're listening on an audio podcast like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., please make sure you give us a star rating, a review that helps us. And if you're watching on YouTube, press subscribe. That helps as well. Most of all, word of mouth. Send a link of your favorite episode to somebody. Force them to listen. You never know. Again, a million love letters and thank yous to you. I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and it's important for me to say that as I like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homelands and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these territories for centuries. I am grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who have come before and who are with us today, passing on knowledge. I continue to open myself up to listen, to learn, and to understand, and from that, discover truths. I make this acknowledgement 
as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, is my special guest, Zaylar Stout, and it's now time to bring him up on your screen and or your listening ears. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Douglas, and apologies for, for the bags under the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're sorry, as much as you say. I think in, there's a part of you that's yes. <laughs> hey, Sailor, let's give a special shout out uh, to somebody, Marie Billet, who is, Absolutely. in my eyes, an icon of LGBTQIA issues here in Alberta and in Canada. He reached out to me on Facebook and said, do you know about this guy? Let me look him up on LinkedIn. Oh my gosh. So he made that connection. And so thank you, Murray, for not only being a great supporter of this podcast, but putting Zaylar into my life and this book that has caused me not to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) All those good things. Where did you meet Murray? How do you know of him? So we met on the beach in um, Puerto Vallarta and lots of gays go to Puerto Vallarta from Minnesota, where I'm located, as well as Canada. And so you just end up having a great mix of folks and you get to meet everybody. And we became friends and the rest is history. <laughs> Excellent. Now you're stuck with them. Taylor, you've done a lot and we have time today to discuss issues, but I know that we don't have all the time that we need to really flesh things out. So we're going to do things on a surface level. And there's the good and there's the bad about that as well. So just putting out there to everybody that will touch on issues, but keep in mind, these are lifelong conversations that need to be had. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned in the introduction, 2014, and you traveling across the country. Why were you doing that at that time? I'm originally from Southern California, so I was raised about a mile away from Disneyland and moved to Minnesota in 2007 to go to law school. So I've made many road trips back and forth between California and Minnesota, which takes me on all these amazing places like Wyoming, which is it was is is still an important factor that that impacted me bring me to write this book. So was it then easy then to sit down and start the writing process? I can't imagine at the beginning you were thinking, oh, I'm going to cover all 50 states. Was it shorter or did you sit down and just go, sure, why not? Let's cover it. Thought of, part of my thought process that, that, that actually came out during the road trip was thinking about LGBTQI plus kids that, are, that live in rural states and rural counties and rural cities where the laws on the books don't, might not necessarily support them, support their gender identity, support their gender expression, support their sexual orientation. And my, my heart went out to them because a lot of times, unfortunately, people feel as though they need to leave where they would call home to go somewhere else where they'll be accepted. And so what I wanted to do was to be able to uplift the stories of folks from those parts of the country, right? Because everybody knows about Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and Miami and New York. But I wanted to make sure that every kid in every state had their stories from their communities uplifted. So from the very beginning, I knew that it was going to be this 50-state project. But one of the ideas that I thought was helpful and beneficial to the entire project 
was actually hiring an army of queer youth to help me do the research as well. So it was a community effort from that perspective, um, paying them for their time, of course. But then now there's more of us out there that are digging into and learning our history, too. And and so that was the idea and the goal from that perspective. So the project was supposed to be four years to write the book when I originally met with my publisher. And I was like, yeah, so we're going to do this in two years. (laughs) I'm going to get this done because, as you indicated in the intro, my day job, I'm an attorney. And so I have clients to represent and everything from that perspective as well. And, And we got it done. We got the book out in time for the 50th anniversary of the historic Stonewall riots. Incredible. Touching upon what you were mentioning about San Francisco, California, New York. When I think of American LGBTQ events, I think of those areas. Mm -hmm. You're based in Minnesota and Minnesota actually has a huge influence and has had many things taken place that are first within your country. Can you talk about Minnesota itself? So many firsts in Minnesota. It was amazing to do the research here. And actually, Minnesota was the state I was the most anxious about writing (laughs) because this is home for me. I knew that, that there would be some tough critics, but I passed with flying colors, so I was happy with that. But some of the first, the first gay marriage in the entire country took place here. And so it's an interesting story. I want to give, I want to give away, give it all away here, but give folks an incentive to, to look into that. The first international two spirit gathering happened here in Minnesota, which I thought was spectacular and amazing. What else? There was, we had our, the first trans man elected in our country's history happened right here two election cycles ago with Philippe Cunningham. So it's just, there's, All these stories, and Minnesota is not an anomaly as it relates to that. There's other states that had all kinds of amazing firsts as well that that I wanted to make sure I included in the book. I didn't want it to just be your usual suspects. I wanted it to have some of these local, locally known or even unknown stories that that really need to be brought to the forefront. That's what I found absolutely amazing within your book is this knowledge and gaining insight. And of course, I'm here in Canada, so separate countries, of course, but Mm -hmm. due to media and other factors, the American influence is heavy here on Canadians. And it's great to know more about, simply because we don't hear those individual stories, as you made mention of the first marriage to Mm -hmm. spirit gathering. One would never have known until reading your book. And that's just one state. There's 49 others plus territories. So much more. I can tell you that in my reading, I'm on state 47. Oh, wow. I'm I'm almost done. Uh, But like I said, these bags. But it's just exciting because you learn so much more. Which leads me to asking you this. Of course, in our school system, no matter if it's Canada or in the United States, Mm -hmm. our queer history is not taught. People may know about Stonewall, but that doesn't get mentioned in the schools very often. For yourself as well, being African-American, your history is not taught in schools as it should. So when did you become aware of the rainbow community? And especially within the African-American men and women, the folks who make up the community itself. When did you learn the history? And that's one of the interesting questions, right? Because our history is not taught in schools. And one of the things that 
one of the revelations uh, that I ended up having writing this book is understanding the privilege that I have as a Black person. Because even though my history was not taught in schools, I was raised in a Black home with a Black family and they taught me Black history at home. So then my question is, how many queer kids are raised in queer homes? Not very many. So many of us, as we start stumbling upon realizing things about ourselves, our gender identity, our gender expression, our, our sexual orientation, we cobble together our chosen family, others that are like us or mentors that are out in the community. And so that becomes our family. But then there's still no structure for us to be able to learn about our history. We stumble upon learning our, our history. You hear about Stonewall when you talk to some trans folks and folks that are elders in our community and seniors and stuff like that. You stumble upon, if you weren't alive during the, the HIV the AIDS crisis of the 80s. You talk to people that, that lived through that and those lived experiences in, in movie and in theater, but there's no concerted way for us to really learn about it ourselves. So it's really us, us digging in and, and trying to find it. I remember as a young kid going to the libraries and, and looking for some semblance of myself amongst all the pages there in, in, in the library. And more often than not, there wasn't anything like this that was really concretely saying, this is the history of the LGBT community. You piece it together from this poem by Langston Hughes. And you're like, wait a minute, he's a guy and he's writing about a guy. Oh, maybe his lived experiences like mine. Some of these names we all know about, but pairing it together that their LGBT identity, LGBTQ plus identity is not always something that's brought forward. So... In your journey in finding yourself, when did you realize that something was up within you, that perhaps you could be different from other people who were around you? Oh, I knew that early on. It was definitely elementary school. So again, growing up in Orange County, there was never a critical mass of Black people. There still really isn't. I think there was three Black kids in my elementary school, maybe got to five when I was in junior high school and high school. So I always knew I was different from that perspective. I was born with uh, birth defects to my hands and my feet. So I knew that I was different from people from that perspective. <clears throat> and in elementary school, I remember having crushes on both guys and girls <laughs> and, and knowing that wasn't necessarily something that that everybody had attraction that others had. So for me, it was early on in regards to, to knowing I was different from that perspective. Mm. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. There's something that I want to put out to the listeners here as well. And I throw it out there because I know what the answer is because it's going to be the same <laughs> as mine. It's piecing together our, our history. And we have to put a lot of work into finding out that information, piece it together. And I think it was around 2015. It was like, oh, great. There's going to be a movie talking about Stonewall. Oh, um, that's how we're going to learn about our history. Zaylor, can you tell me why that's, it wasn't a good movie for our community and especially for people who wanted to learn? Oh, my goodness. I talk about this when I do my trainings. If my memory serves me correct, the movie made less than $200,000. And it was because it was a whitewashing of our history. It had the protagonist as being this cisgender white guy that was the one that threw the first brick and started the whole Stonewall riot. And anybody that's done this much research in the Stonewall knows that the space was a safe haven for transgender, gender non-conforming folks, mainly people of color. And Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson are heralded as being our, our heroines in regards to this and, and bringing this fight forward. And Stonewall wasn't the first time. There was the Black Cat. There was a Compton Cafeteria in, in, Cafeteria in California that happened before Stonewall. But Stonewall was that breaking point for the community to say, hey, you know what? We need to band together because this, is, this, can't, just, this can't continue. I don't have her name uh, on the top of my head at the moment, but 
stories do say that it was a black uh, lesbian who threw the first uh, brick, who was a bouncer at the bar. I'm going to have to find that information there as well that for her, that she didn't want the limelight of it all, but we need to know these stories. We need to know the truth. And unfortunately, as a community, we have to piece it together in so many ways because we're not taught about ourselves in the school. Mm -hmm. And And can I add add to that? Yes, Um, please. when When we think about the time as well, it's not a safe time today for folks that are transgender, non-binary, especially um, people of color. And you think about the time back then, it still, it really wasn't safe. And so it makes sense for for folks to not necessarily want to be on the front page of the newspaper in regards to something like this. However, the other part that was also apparent through the movie Stonewall as well is our trans siblings, our gender non-conforming siblings at the time were really pushed out of the movement and allowed to really participate and, and be involved because the thought process was that society wouldn't accept gays and lesbians because you had trans folks that were not we're pushing against the gender norms and and the gender binary. And and so that was the thought process. And the sad part is it's taken a long time really for our transgender gender non-conforming non-binary siblings to really receive their proper seat at the table where they should have been in the first place. We see that in the media, Laverne being able to create a space and the actors and actresses from the TV show Pose Mm -hmm. are getting noticed recently, Mm -hmm. only recently. And it's a great thing that's taking place, but uh, why didn't this happen ages ago? <laughs> that's a conversation. I know it's, <laughs> it just sucks with that. There's so many different ways to go with this conversation here, but I really want to touch upon your knowledge and what you bring with that knowledge piece. Two of the founders of Black Lives Matters mm-hmm. happen to be queer, but despite all of that, homophobia and transphobia mm-hmm is prevalent within the communities of color. How do you see the needed change being most successful? Is it breaking it down at the community level? Is it with government, both state, provincial, federally? Or will change only take place within communities after the Supreme Court in either the United States or Canada forces us to do that? Mm-hmm. Great question. I think it's really a combination of all of them. But at the end of the day, hearts and minds change by personal interactions with individuals that are members of the community. And so this just this reminds me of Harvey Milk saying way back, we have to come out. We need to let people know that we are part of their churches, their synagogues, that we are their co-workers, their neighbors, that we are their gardeners, their bartenders, their doctors, their lawyers. And one of the first, getting back to Minnesota a little bit with the Minnesota history, Minnesota was the first state in the United States to defeat a marriage amendment. So up to that point, every state, every marriage amendment that went up for a vote was voted in, defining marriage as being just between a man and a woman. And so a lot of the work and the concerted effort that was done here in Minnesota in regards to us being able to be the first to defeat that marriage amendment was people getting out and telling their stories, knocking on their doors and meeting their neighbors and having that discussion with them and saying, hey, if you love me, why don't you want me to be able to have the same right to be able to marry the person it is that I love? And it's having those important on the ground, kitchen table 
dialogues and discussions, as well as with your family members. Because if you have, they say one in 10 individuals are LGBT. I saw a video recently that was talking about if every family has roughly 3.2 you know, children, then out of three homes, right? Your home, the one to the right, one to the left, somebody's LGBT, right? So if you have discussions with those folks, it makes a difference because there are more allies out there than there are members of our community. And so if we're able to get the support of even half of the members in our family, if we have a family of 10, that's five, six people that are going to be able to vote for equality for us. And so the Black community is no different than any other community from that perspective. The one thing that I would say is that the African-American community tends to have a higher percentage of folks that are very religious. And unfortunately, there, there are folks in religious positions out there that are advocating harm for the community. And making and creating spaces and religious leaders coming out in support, I think, is important. The Pope's slow, nudging slowly towards more acceptance and saying things about families supporting and including their LGBT folks makes a difference. Having important um, leaders like Reverend Al Sharpton, who was involved with the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King Jr., coming out forcefully indicating that the right for the fight for civil rights for LGBT people is the right for civil rights, is the same fight for civil rights for that, that Black and Brown folks are fighting in this country. So all of those things make a difference from that perspective. When did you notice that with yourself and your own coming out story, what did you find the stories were like when you first were coming out compared to those stories that you're having now? Well, sadly, lots of people not being accepted by their families, lots of people being kicked out. And the homeless population, that especially the youth homeless population, is significantly LGBTQ. And that's sadly not something that's changed. And we know that as members of the community because we track this stuff. But even when I have this conversation with individuals that I find to be very educated and informed that are heterosexual, cisgender, don't know that the majority of those that are homeless youth are LGBTQ and they're shocked and surprised at the data. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of folks, if you look at the the trends from generational perspective, well, the baby boomers are the, were the, even today, the lowest percentage of, of, from a generational perspective of folks coming out. You go all the way to the newest generation, 20% are identifying as LGBTQ. Creating space for people to be able to be their authentic selves, live their authentic lives makes a difference because all that really shows and so my perspective is that there were probably 20% of baby boomers that were LGBTQ as well. They just didn't live in a society that would allow for them to be themselves. People who've listened to previous episodes of this Tales of the 2S LGBTQ plus podcast know that I have an organization that has a lot of youth involvement, especially talking about unhoused youth. Mm -hmm. Here in the city of Edmonton, 40 to 45% of the unhoused kids identify as being part of our rainbow community, 40 to 45%. That's significant. That same number is similar in Calgary, Vancouver. And I'm confident if we were doing Minneapolis and St. Paul, the mm -hmm. percentage would be very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. heartbreaking. We still have a lot of work to do in regards to addressing the challenge of people experiencing homelessness. And it's gone up significantly since the pandemic too. Sadly, me being originally from California, it's it's always been an issue in California, but it's ballooned significantly since the pandemic. And there's lots of reasons that have <laughs> nothing to do with identity as it relates to that, right? Not having access to healthcare, not having access to mental health care, all those different types of things 
impact it. But for our transgender non-binary siblings, it's even more of a challenge if if how you express yourself and your gender to the world is not something that's accepted, then it's hard to get work. And so that's a challenge too. In 1998, here in Canada, the Del- Delwyn Vreen case made it to the Supreme Court of Canada. Murray Billet, who we mentioned before, was involved in that case. And when the verdict came down in 1998, it was then illegal to be fired from your job if you were part of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, in reality, it was only a few years ago when measures were passed to fully protect the transgender community in Canada. That was 1998. It's only been 24 years since then that someone like myself could not be fired. I was an out teacher when it got passed. Where's the United States at when it comes to the workplace and when it comes to our rainbow community, when it comes to legislation, protecting our rights at the work site? <laughs> We're way behind Canada. So there was an important case that came out through the United States Supreme Court, the Bostock case, which dealt with, there is a combination of three different cases, but really dealing with discrimination in the workplace against members of the LGBT community. And the Supreme Court ruled in, in, in favor of our community, indicating nationwide that you can't discriminate against folks in the workplace based on their sexual orientation or their gender identity. That's a Supreme Court decision, and it's not a law that's on the books. So it's based on common law. So if the courts were to revisit this issue and decide the other way, then those 29 states that did not have protections for the community will not no longer have protections there. And so that's why it's important that things like the Equality Act be passed that would codify this decision into law so that based on federal law, you could not discriminate against folks in the workplace based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. And folks that perhaps in Canada are tracking uh, the Supreme Court here in the United States, there were some shenanigans that took place that resulted in our past president having the ability to nominate two very conservative justices on the court. So the balance is conservative and so not necessarily looking in our favor. Not taking up a case this session that would address the, the Bostock decision, but there are conservative justices that have come forward indicating that they're looking for that right case to be able to take so that they can possibly overturn that decision. Wow. That's the one thing about the states when we look at what's taking place down there is just how much the court system plays a part in everything. And the passing down of this and the passing down of that, it's confusing to someone like myself here in Canada where I could not name you uh person on our Supreme Court at the moment, Beverly McLaughlin, before she retired, was heading it up there. But we would not know the justices, and it's not a political thing whatsoever. So it's very confusing to my ears. And when I'm looking at the cases, it flummoxes me. (laughs) That's the way that I can take a look at it. Uh, Yourself as a lawyer, how do you keep track of local laws, state laws, federal when it comes to helping people with discrimination cases, helping people who are HIV positive with their cases as well. How do you Mm -hmm. keep track of it all? That's my job, so I got to do it. But here's the thing with employment law. Employment law tends to move very slowly and there aren't very many changes. Employment lawyers in the United States know which states 
provide more protections to employees than the federal law does. And so states like California and, you know, Washington and Minnesota and New York, we know which states are the ones that are going above and beyond to provide additional protections to employees in the workplace. Example, back to Minnesota, some fun facts about Minnesota. Minneapolis was the first state to pass a statute that indicates that you can't discriminate against folks in the workplace based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So the very first city in the United States was Minneapolis protecting folks that are transgender and non-binary. And, that even, and even though that language wasn't necessarily language that was around at the time. And there are, it, 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 it grows from there. You have states, you have cities that move forward in regards to passing ordinances, providing protections. Sometimes you end up getting a critical mass of cities and counties that do that. And so then the state ends up doing it, getting a critical mass of states that are doing it. The feds look into it and, and move from that perspective. But unfortunately, our federal government it's things that shouldn't be political are political. Many people, if you were to ask, and I know they've done surveys about this across the country, but most Americans think and thought before this Bostock decision that you couldn't discriminate against folks based on their sexual orientation and gender identity. People just thought that was the law of the land, even though it's not. So we definitely have some catching up to do as it relates to where the country is. Talking a lot about Minnesota, because that's where you're based. And, and I was shocked when all the facts about Minnesota were put out there because Recently, what we know about Minnesota is politics. And after listening to the body, Jesse Ventura, I understand his viewpoints and and I can see why he was elected. How the heck did Minnesota elect Michelle Bachman as a representative when Minnesota has done so many amazing things when it comes to our community? How does Michelle Bachman get put out there? Again, there's the the redistricting process that happens in regards to congressional districts. And there are very conservative congressional districts all across the country in every state. The part that most folks don't necessarily always understand is that there's always going to be a critical mass of folks in the cities, but you don't have to go that far out for it to be very rural and very conservative. And that's one of the areas that where Michelle Bachman came from. And then especially when you have folks that are both conservative and affluent, there you go. <laughs> they have the ability to be able to put the money in to be able to help folks get elected. And that's the other thing. Money plays such a, a, a integral part of people being able to get elected. That's the challenge as well. You just have to raise so much money to be able to compete. And regardless of sometimes your where your heart is and your mission, if you don't have the ability to be able to get hire people to go and knock on doors and, and convince voters to get out and to get out and vote for you, it can be challenging. And I asked that question before, not as a, an accusatory pointing fingers at all, oh, yeah. because here in Alberta, we have a premier who would be like a governor mm-hmm. in the United States, a premier who I won't say his name because there's so much distaste has always been. He started his political career by going down to San Francisco and helping make sure that in San Francisco, they did not pass a law that allowed partners of people dying of HIV to be visited in the hospital. And he made sure that that got passed. He came back to Canada, bragged about it, and that's where he got his political clout. And in the province of Alberta, we elected him to be premier. Hmm. And I'll swear, what the fuck? (laughs) It's just... Yeah. And it comes down to the rural vote, urban vote, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. money 
can gloss over so many different things that we've done in our past and pushes it away. And that's unfortunately what happens. It happens here in Canada. As much as we like to say that we are in a country of holding hands and kumbaya, voting in people like the Premier of Alberta, you've seen what's taking place with the convoy and the yep. leaders who created it. You get some media behind them. They get away with everything. Yeah. Enough about politics, though. <laughs> we can talk about it. Let's go back to your book itself. What has been uh, the reception of the book since it's been released? It's been amazing and great. It's won a bunch of awards, which is always nice. Some of them were more impactful, I guess, to me. Coffee table book. I want it to be a beautiful, I want it to be a beautiful and engaging book that people would want to pick up, especially since this is a book that's geared towards young people. I remember growing up and the encyclopedias being around and encyclopedias weren't super engaging, but you still did it because you wanted the knowledge and stuff. And I wanted this to be a different kind of book for folks to want to be able to pick up and read. And it's great hearing stories from folks where you have somebody that comes over and they're like, oh, what's this? And then an hour later, they're resurfacing after really digging into the book. So that's been great. As well, it got picked up as being an approved source, uh, approved textbook for teaching LGBTQ plus history in the state of Illinois. So here in the States, there are six states that, quote, require with the soft requirement, whereas really there's no teeth to the legislation, but it's a start, the teaching of LGBT history in schools. So it's California, New Jersey, Illinois, Colorado, Oregon, and if my memory serves me correct, Nevada was the most recent one that came on board in regards to that. But I just love hearing the story about kids that parents that get it for their kids and the kids are like, why am I not teach, getting taught this in schools, right? And we're hearing that we're learning the same history over and over again. This is what I need to learn. Kids in Kentucky are rallying and urging their legislators to require the teaching of all diverse histories, Black history, women's history, people with the history of people with disabilities, LGBT history and the like. So the kids are saying and advocating for what it is that they want. It's the adults that they want. Yeah. And we saw at the time of this taping, it's the beginning of March. Yesterday, the last couple of days, we've seen in Florida, mm-hmm. the kids rise up to fight against the law that looks to be passed by DeSantis and them about don't say gay. Don't say the kids gay. are rising up and saying, ah, uh, yeah, we will. And you're going to get glitter, jazz hands and all the above. And we're going to be out there to say, no, mm-hmm. it's amazing to see the voices come forth. And as the kids find themselves in advocacy, and that's not just the kids who are, rainbow filled it's our allies as well and the kids are our future and it's going to be good i know it's going to be good the kids are not having it at all so the interesting thing is i presented two sessions at the last two lgbt uh, bar association conferences that's happened nationally over the last two years and both of them were actually on this whole the don't say gay bills and the history in regards to where they came from HIV AIDS time, right? In the 80s, all of these kinds of bills got passed and many of them had been falling over the last couple of years and there were only a handful left. And I didn't submit a proposal this year for the conference to have a third session, a third year in a row about it because it seemed like it was old news and it was going by the wayside. But lo and behold, now we have Florida and probably soon Texas in regards to trying to revive this type of hate that's around against, against LGBT kids. The only way that I can get through it and not be angered as much is simply knowing that 
that notion that these governors are putting out there and the premier here in the province, mm -hmm. they're dying out and it's the last gasp and yeah. it's their last way of being able to hold on to the traditions of the past. And yeah, I, I would never want anything bad to happen to people, those type of things, of course, but it's the last gasp. If people are taking over soon and it's going to be better, it has mm -hmm. to be better. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't made mention of it yet here on this podcast, but I would like you to mention a little bit about not the sequel to our, <laughs> our gay history in 50 states, but a companion book that you have um, been doing here as well. So can you talk more about this companion piece uh, that is, of course, going to be my sleepless nights here when I get to read it, but tell us more about it. No, absolutely. So the plan was always to have a collection of books that cover different marginalized groups. Those histories aren't always something that's told. And I have many elements of those identities that, that are part of my personal identity. So the plan was always to also write a, a Black history book. So our Black history in 50 states is currently in the works. People will be able to pre-order it Juneteenth this year. And the plan is to have the book completed and out and done and in people's hands by Juneteenth, 2023. So we'll be uplifting the story of Black history state by state. And I'm excited about that because this whole journey as it relates to history for me actually started back in high school. Moving from Anaheim to Ventura and seeing skinheads at my school right there in person as opposed to just on TV was really a wake-up call for me. And I came to the realization that I think they might know more about my history than I know about my history. So I started a Black Student Union and we did fundraisers and stuff and Black History Month events and were able to buy books on Black history to add to our library because we didn't feel that the library had sufficient enough books for us there. And so it's interesting coming full circle and now writing a book that could also, you know, be part of that history that kids will be able to see and use moving forward. Let's delve into deeper on this part here. At the time of the Rodney King murder and the anti-police brutality riots, mm -hmm. I, through my research, I understood that you were assaulted by a skinhead mm -hmm. uh, who never faced punishment. And I've also understood that you've been pulled over by police over 30 times. Mm -hmm. yep. Racial profiling. What can you tell the listeners about the movement towards equal rights for African-Americans? It's always been a push and pull in this country, sadly enough. There's a, a meme that goes around that shows the whole timeline of our country's history. And the red, it's almost like a speedometer or like a gas gauge. And so there's a huge chunk of red. And you can see maybe three quarters of our country's history. Slavery was law, lawful, right? Then after slavery, you have the part where there's Jim Crow and all those different types of things. And then you have like life after Jim Crow, right? 1964. It wasn't that long ago. My parents lived in the segregated South. That was their lived experience. I'm part of Generation X. I'm the first generation that was not our lived experience. So it wasn't that long ago. And that's the part that is challenging when you have elected officials like DeSantis moving forward with these anti-woke bills where you can't talk about or reference anything that's good that would make white people or white kids feel guilty or, or ashamed or embarrassed about 
their identity or their history. And it's nobody really cared. seems like nobody really cares in regards to the impact that these systems have had against the, the black and brown communities. And the sad part here is that we're still fighting for for equality, something as simple as having equal access to be able to vote. And the fight continues, unfortunately. And we can talk a little bit about Minnesota and what's been going on here as well. Folks all around the world know Minnesota and Minneapolis, not for the right reasons, but it is where we are. And this is a fight that we've been screaming from the rooftops. My community has been screaming from the rooftops in regards to this issue, inequality and things of nature for a long time. And it's, I guess, a comfort to know that finally, the majority of folks at least have an idea in regards to what the issues are. And when we take a look at pictures from the past, they're in black and white. Ruby Bridges was the first black girl who went into the all-white school. I think she was born 1954, so she would be at the age of my father. Mm -hmm. It's not a long time ago. Not a long time ago. Yeah. And so it's recent, and we need to remember that the struggle takes place every single day, and it's only recently when we're having these conversations, having this discussion, and the fact that putting out curriculum for critical race theory is so controversial makes no sense to me. I will never understand it. Uh, and the thing is, critical race theory isn't even being taught in those schools. Critical race theory is barely taught in law schools. My law school did not teach critical race theory when I went there. And that was in 2007 to 2010. So it's just this boogeyman mentality of t- talk, speaking the truth in regards to our history. That's really what it is, right? Mm-hmm. We want to put ourselves, at least here in the United States, as being the best and in, in the best light and everything. But we need to own up to our past. And that's really what it's all about. One of the interesting things that somebody referenced at some point, which which I thought was amazing and brilliant way of thinking about it and framing it, is why are they so scared about sharing this history with young folks? And it's they presume that these kids, once hearing this history, will side with the oppressors as opposed to those that are being oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, then, I need to ask you then, you've mentioned the word woke. and I know I hear from conservative friends and family, Douglas, you're woke. And people throw that out as a word that's supposed to be offensive to me, I guess. (laughs) Great. What does the word woke mean to you? I I like taking a more intersectional approach to the term woke. And this is uh, something that I reference in some of the trainings that I do that pushes the envelope in regards to things. But woke has African-American roots, and it's about an awakening and awareness in regards to social justice issues, particularly relating to race. For me, I want I, I prefer a broader view as it relates to woke, because you can be woke in regards to race issues, but then you can still be asleep as it relates to gender issues. You can be woke as it relates to gender issues, but then you can still be asleep as it relates to gender identity and gender expression issues, where you have women in the feminist movement that push against the inclusion of trans women. So it's just those the intersectional conspect, aspects in regards to all of these, I think is is the important way of looking at it. But I, I agree with you. I think it's, I find it to be funny when throw the term woke out there as if it's some type of, I should be offended by it. And I'm like, hey, that's a badge of honor for me. But the thing is, I would hope, and I haven't done any like surveys or studies in regards to this, I'll have to do some research on it. But I'd hope that 
at this point in the world's history that we can all agree, or at least the majority of us can agree, that women have it harder in life just because they are women. And it's if we can, if we can, not everybody, but majority, 51% of folks in the world can agree on that. Hopefully, I don't think we're there yet that we can agree that black and brown people just have it harder because they're black and brown, that society has not been set up for members of my community to succeed and thrive. And you see some of the infographs where you show the difference between equity and all those different types of things. And it's like the race where somebody's weight, they've already been running for 10 minutes and now you're expected to catch up. And if you don't catch up, it's your fault. And so it's that kind of understanding. And I don't think we're there yet. We're definitely not there as it relates to LGBT issues either. I think there's a presumption that that there's not, I'm sorry, there's just not an understanding that life is a bit more challenging and harder for individuals that are members of the LGBT community because of how society has not fully accepted us. And even though that there's progress, Canada, you passed your law 24 years ago in regards to non-discrimination in the workplace. There's still lawsuits that get passed. There's still lawsuits that are filed every single day in regards to those types of things. We have a case coming up in the United States Supreme Court here, the case they just announced today, I think, addressing the issue of businesses being able to discriminate based on, on religious basis. There's a woman that I think she makes, she creates wedding websites for couples and she doesn't want to help individuals that are LGBT. Now, there's no LGBT folks that have gone to her. So it's just interesting that this is a case that the court is taking up in regard to that. Mm -hmm. This religious exemption thing is going to be interesting because it was also religious. People also use religion to support segregation in this country. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And here as well. And it's going to happen because all of the institutions have been created on the backs of African-American peoples with slavery. And mm-hmm. we continue with those systems here in place. So how are you going to yeah. break the shackle, so to speak, to empower everyone when the system has been created to put people down? Yeah. Hey, this this kind of off topic here, and I don't know your uh, belief system here, but when you hear the term defund the police, what does defund the police mean to you? And that's a really good question for me because I'm here in Minneapolis where some of our elected officials were the, were the ones that were beat up a bit in the media in regards to the term defunding the police. I know what they meant by it because I'm Philippe Cunningham, for example, my elected representative and we're friends. And so we've had those dialogues and those discussions in regards to it. And so it was never to completely defund the police so that there was never any police. It was that funding it in a way that supports their efforts and what they're trying to do and things that they're not good at, redirect those resources somewhere else. So for example, I have family members that are that have been in that are and or have been involved in law enforcement. And there are certain calls that they hate taking, right? Mental health calls. You have somebody that's having some mental health challenge. They're not best suited for that. You'll necessarily need somebody with a gun. To, to go to that call. So if the police don't like those calls, why not give it to somebody or have those calls go to somebody that's better suited to be able to address those types of situations? If somebody parks on the street and blocks my driveway so I can't get out, we're, we're trained here to call the police for that. Do I need the police for that? No. If you have a elder in the community that's deputized to be the police liaison here, and it's Joe that lives down the street and everybody loves Joe, everybody knows Joe, he's like the grandpa of the block, calling Joe and having Joe have the authority to be able to call the tow truck to do that makes more sense. We don't need a guy with a gun to be able to come out to that. 
My belief in regard to the defund the police was really shifting the resources so that it's better suited to be able to address the calls that are coming in and having the police focus on those violent crimes and those situations that really where police are really needed. In In picking up with what you were saying before, even, is it universally realized that everyone has implicit and unconscious bias relating to the LGBTQ plus community? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's been trainings I've attended. One of my dear friends, Rebecca Wagner, does. And one of the questions she asked in the very beginning, it's one of those like shocking things for folks, is the pejorative term for LGBT folks, so the, the F word, right? And asking them, asking folks, when was the first time they had heard any reference to the LGBT community? And was it something that was favorable or just, and nobody says anything was favorable. They think of these types of things and people being bullied and being called sissies and, and all these different types of things. And that, where does that come from? And that comes from somewhere. People don't, don't just, they're just not born with this type of mentality and thought process. And hopefully we get to a point in a world where that's not the case, that the default isn't for people to do and say things that are disparaging to the community especially to young people that happen to be their kids when they don't know necessarily what their sexual orientation or gender identity is. Like kids track what parents and their families say, and it's archived in regard to their memory and impact. Who it is that they come out to if they come out at all. What are some tips that people can utilize in order to identify their own 2S LGBTQIA plus biases and blind spots? So Harvard has an amazing implicit bias um, study program thing that you can do, a survey. It's free. It's online. So I'm sure we can track down the link and, and make sure that we include it with the details of this podcast. It's got all different kinds of areas, political, gender, color, all those all those different things, as well as LGBTQ. So I recommend taking that survey because it's going to prob- perhaps provide you with some insight, hopefully, in regards to whether you have any biases. I think I had a friend that did it. <laughs> And her bias was for the community and she's an ally. She's one of my besties that I've known forever. So she was like, I'm good with that. <laughs> but but it's a good it's a good starting point to see where it is that you are. And I'd recommend not just taking the one as it relates to sexual orientation and gender identity, but take the others as well. And then take them a year later and see where you're at. And if you want to move and feel like you need to move, then you can do different things to be able to move, move towards those areas. So that's the tip that I would provide. Yeah. Use it as the starting point of your journey. Like you would in school, you have tests to that take a look at where you're at with your learning. Use it, come back to it again in the future. That's the teacher and me coming out and talking at the moment. <laughs> the recovering junior high teacher who's still recovering after 20 years of teaching. Wow. Since then. <laughs> I taught junior high for three years. I've been teaching adult education since then because it's much more comfortable for me. But I still go into a field position thinking of the junior high years. That oh, also better you, than, better you than me. <laughs> yeah, that could be the reason why I have the bags under my eyes. Maybe. Mm, no, I'm still blaming you, Zaylor. I'm still blaming you. <laughs> There's, uh, we're coming to the end of the time that we have with each other. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we're only going to be able to touch on some of these topics mm-hmm. because these topics are life. And it's... Mm-hmm of us creating space for everyone in the proper way. And you can't do that in a short podcast, but we can do the taste test of it. There's a quote that I found of yours that I loved, and I want you to comment more about it. In it, you said or wrote, and I don't know which one it is, Mm -hmm. 
if you're comfortable, you're not doing enough. The seed has to break open in order for the sprout to come forth. How do we open that dang seed? <laughs> we have to have those uncomfortable conversations. We have to combat the inherent biases um, that we have. And part of it is that knowledge and that awakening as it relates to it. Even us as members of the LGBTQ plus community, there, we have internalized homophobia that, that was trained in us that we have to be able to fight and combat as well. And so it's coming to that realization. It's having the, the courage to, to stumble, to be called out and sometimes called in, ideally, in regard to these types of things, because that's where growth happens. If we stay and stick with the people that look like us, think like us, you will have less of an opportunity to grow as a person. And I think that's one of the reasons why when people go to college, right, they there's this opening of, of awareness in regards to things because you're going to be around and, and interacting with people that are completely different from you. One of the things I love about coming from California to Minnesota is I have far more Muslim and Jewish friends now that I didn't have growing up in my area. So I know a whole lot more about the cultures and the traditions and the diversity of thought even amongst individuals that practice these different religions. And so it's having, it's creating those opportunities to have access to other people, to be able to have those important dialogues and grow from that perspective. I, obviously, I agree 100% and more. Um, part of the reason why this podcast was created was, yes, I was lonely I wasn't having the conversations like I was before when I was working with second language learners new to Canada. Why I always stayed with teaching newcomers to Canada is because I was helping them with the English for them to be able to tell their stories in another language, to write down the greatest stories that have never been put into print before and giving them language. And now having a podcast like this gives that voice. It's important and it's important to have the different voices come here uh, to discuss because that's how we learn. And I also realized over the past year that I've had the biases very similar with what you just mentioned. There's a group that I helped form this past year called Pride Corner on White, where we are out on the streets on very busy intersection in Edmonton where we protest street preachers. We open up space for unhoused kids. I had a revelation that stunned me about a month ago that if I did not help organize this, I would not have had lesbians in my life. I realized I was in the silo where the previous six years I was in my gay men, bear, cub community mm -hmm. and didn't reach out and my biases, where I went to the stereotypes when it pertained to lesbians in particular, was first in my mind at all times. And so I've been challenged uh, so much this past year. And I love when you say called out and called in. I always thought I was doing that with my career and my life, but I wasn't in so many different ways. So let's make sure that we get this Harvard study out there. Let's make sure that we continue having these conversations within the community, within the podcast, and within your life, Sailor. Continue to do what, with what you're doing because it is important. A couple of things here for everybody. I'm just bringing to the screen a website for the law offices of www.stoutslaw.com. Yes. S-T-O-U-T. 
slaw.com. A lot of information is found there, not just about the law offices, but about Sailor himself. I found him on LinkedIn. I do expect many people to send him messages now on LinkedIn. What is the best way to get a hold of you, Sailor? If it's in regards to an employment law, legal type of issue concern, then the website, stoutslaw.com, is a great spot. LinkedIn is always great because I'm also posting updates and, and information from the employment law perspective there as well. If you want to reach out to me as it relates to the book, my current book, Our Gay History in 50 States That's Out, or Our Black History in 50 States That's Coming Out, that would be at, actually, there's two websites for that one, but gay50states.com would be the website for that. Gay50states.com. Excellent. And we'll, of course, make sure that gets out there because I love my copy and nobody <laughs> comes over to my place is allowed to borrow it. And mm, I'll never it get it back. <laughs> so I know that right now. So I know there's a few of people who are listening that are, typing in to get that information to get it themselves. And I highly recommend it, not just as a Christmas gift. It's a gift to yourself. Order it now. Do it. That's your homework assignment. <laughs> there you go. And the one thing that I'll add in regards to that is purchasing the book directly through us, through our website at gay50states.com means that you can also select an LGBT nonprofit that will get 10% of your book's proceeds. So yes, the book is for sale, available at all your regular retail places, and maybe the place online that you always end up buying everything. But if you want to help somebody get more rockets into space, as opposed to the LGBT nonprofit in your community, then buy it directly through us is ideal. Hey, Zaylor, when did you realize how fabulous you were and fantastic? Uh, I'm humble. <laughs> I'm working on getting fabulous. <laughs> you are AR, but it's just, yeah, that's the one thing. And when introduced, it was like, here, you need to know this person. He's got his beat together. He's got his, he knows what he's doing, but he's humble, extremely humble. Zaylor, thank you for this conversation today. It's a starting point for many of the listeners. And I hope we'll be able to continue this conversation, making sure people get resources, but it's an open invite. Please come back. It's great to be able to learn more. And so we're not just looking through our lenses. I go through life wearing yellow sunglasses and I kiss my yellow husband. I, I kiss my yellow cats. I drive my yellow car. I realize that you are very similar to me wearing sunglasses, but you're bl wearing blue ones. And you live your life in this blue world doing the same thing. I want to be able to wear your sunglasses, but I recognize I can't take off my own yellow ones. I can find your blue ones at a Walmart. I can put them over top of mine, open my eyes, and I see that there's green. Mm -hmm. And that's the world that we're building towards when we're trying to do intercultural awareness, when we're doing that intersection. We realize that we're wearing these different colored sunglasses. Let's come back again and find this green space, okay? Let's do it. Perfect. On behalf of my great guest, and once again, thank you, Murray, Zaylor Stout, my name is Douglas Parsons. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Next week, we have the weirdo hero, ravenous Randy Myers, talking about his 20 years wrestling in the squared circle, talking about himself, how he found himself as a pansexual, bisexual male, 
in the wrestling industry. Liz Messiah comes in the week after talking about all the great things that she has done within the community, building it so much more. Until next time, everyone, I'm reminding you to be good and always text when you get home. Goodbye for now.